Thanks for listening to this podcast from Walks Around Britain. For more information, our terms of use and to click through to see the show notes on our blog with photographs, videos and links to related sites, please visit walksaroundbritain.co.uk. On the 26th edition of the Walks Around Button podcast, we look at a smartphone app designed to get non-walkers walking. We celebrate 10 years of BBC Two's Coast and... I've spent my whole life working in remote, challenging regions and crazily I'd overlooked a really world-class adventure, more or less on my front doors. Adventurer Paul Rose talks about the Pennine Way. Hello and you're very welcome to the 26th edition of the Walks Around Button podcast. I'm Andrew White and I'm your walking guide for the next 30 minutes of walking and outdoor chat here on the podcast. You can find out more information about this podcast and everything we do at Walks Around Button at our website walksaroundbutton.co.uk. Now, a while ago, Rambler Scotland launched a smartphone app designed to help people who don't walk regularly to get into the outdoors with a range of short walking routes from all over Scotland. And the app also helps you keep track of your progress and set personal targets to feel fitter and healthier. The app is called Medal Routes, and Rob Burns from Rambler Scotland is on the line to talk about it. Rob, welcome to the podcast. So what does the app actually do? Yes, um, Meadow Roots is a project created by Rambler Scotland and um, we're trying to encourage people to be more active as a legacy to the 2014 Commonwealth Games. The app is a way for us to just keep that going. We have already made quite an impact with um, the project. We have um, a potential reach of um, over 100,000 people, but the app will get us new audiences, um, younger audiences, and target a, a larger demographic of the, the Scotland residents. There's lots of great features with that. You can find and walk middle routes all over the country. We've got over um, 300 routes for people to um, walk. You can also create your own wonderful routes. People in Scotland, everyone in Scotland has a, a walk that they love to do, and we want those people to share it with the um, middle routes community. You can also set yourself some personal goals. So if you want to fit into a summer dress or if you want to walk the length of the Great Wall of China, you can set yourself that goal and monitor your own success. There's also a hub of information that you could find out um, what you could do next. Maybe you don't want to walk anymore. You want to try another physical activity opportunity. um, And that's where you would go for that. So there's lots of great features on that. But we've also got a leaderboard as well. So every time you walk, you get yourself a medal and you get yourself some points and you go into the leaderboard. And it's a bit of a competition way to try and get people to walk more often, really. The open access to land which Scotland enjoys is a a great freedom, but do you think that sometimes that makes it harder for less regular walkers to go out and find good walking routes? Well, I think that the real problem that we have is that people just don't walk at all. So um, I I think the 
keen walkers will go off on their own and find their own path throughout Scotland, which is absolutely fantastic. But people that don't walk currently, I think they need that kind of stepping stone. They need to know where a good walk is, where a kind of seal of approval walk that um, other people have walked and they've enjoyed. The Meadow Roots project is really um, engaged with that type of person that hasn't really walked before or hasn't really done that much physical activity. All the walks are either 50 minutes, 30 minutes or 60 minutes long. So it means they can kind of progress um, they could start off with a short, a very short walk just around their community and then they can progress into a longer walk. I think that for many non-walkers, the image of walking is all about going up several Monroes on a multi-day trek and the 30-minute walk in the park really isn't talked about a lot, is it? Yeah, I think that a lot of people have that opinion that you, you, to walk you have to go up to the hills, but we're trying to show people that there's lots of fantastic routes just at your doorstep. No. There's um, beautiful parks, like you say, there's um, lochs and there's woodland walks and there's so many fantastic walks in Scotland. I've been so surprised working here just how many fantastic routes there are. And um, this project is just to try and promote them. I mean, everyone knows about the Monroes, everyone knows about the West Highland Way and all these longer walks that more extreme walkers will will choose. But we've got a, a, a wealth of fantastic shorter walks and that's kind of what the app itself is trying to promote and to try and get people out there using them. How much does the app cost? The app is completely free to download. You can, oh, excellent. Yeah, you can download it on all Apple and Android devices and it's there for everyone to use. Uh, we wanted to make sure that it was free so everyone could download it and have it in their back pocket when they feel they need to get out there and have a walk. Now, do you have to be in Scotland to be able to use it? You don't have to be in Scotland to use it. You can create your own routes anywhere in, in Britain. But um, for the special medal routes that we have created and we're promoting Zambor Scotland, they're all in Scotland. So if you want to walk a, a, an official medal route, then you have to come to Scotland and that's a good excuse to have a little break up here. But you can keep the app when you're back home and continue with the, the motivation and create your own routes when you're back home. That's great. And of course, the long distance trails often have shorter circular routes off of the main trail. Yeah, um, there's many of our our meadow routes that actually taken a little bit of um, one of the longer routes, um, like the West Highland Way. We've got some circular routes that kind of highlight certain areas of that route. Um, so it means that you could start small and then build yourself up. It's all about just trying to get people out there walking and if someone starts with a shorter walk and builds their strength and builds their ability to walk more often, then they'll be able to find that they will walk a longer route in no time at all. And how do people find out more information? Um, all information about the project can be found at ramblers.org.uk forward stroke metal route. Or to download the, the app, you can visit your app store or visit meadowroots.org. Rob, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Now, it's ten years since a series called Coast burst onto the screens of the UK on BBC Two. And it introduced a team of experts to discover stories along the shores of our island. The programme is back for its tenth series – and series producer Sean Price is joining me from Coast HQ. Sean, welcome to the podcast. So it's 10 years of Coast, which is pretty remarkable for a series which wasn't intended to last this long. This is the first series I've worked on. Yeah, when um, Steve Evanson and the team started Coast um, all those years ago, it was an intended, yeah, as a sort of one-off journey around the coastline of the UK. 
Um, I think what what they realised pretty quickly was once they started doing that, the possibilities were endless. The stories were amazing and never-ending, and there were so many of them. And, you know, why stick at the UK? Actually, there's a there's a whole coastline across the world, potentially, to, to be explored. So we certainly, by Series 10, didn't feel there was any shortage of stories or places to go or new ways to revisit old old places. Because that's the trick, it's to maintain the quality and the quirkiness of the stories as the series marches on. We, in a way, have too many stories to be able to fit them all in or to you know to be able to fit fit the themes and one thing that once the programs sort of change from being a, a geographical journey from a to b in in each program now they're thematic so there's a there's a theme per program that in a way opens ever more doors because you can dot about all over the the coastline yes. finding the best stories to to go with your particular themes we've had no shortage of stories in all the kind of genres that coast covers so we're part way through the series on bbc2 but what could people see if they're watching from the start on bbc iplayer oh uh, <laughs> where do i start Program one is uh, it's our holiday coast, it's called, and it's um, basically Nick Crane forms the spine of the program as ever. So, so Nick pops up sort of four or five times throughout the the program, and the sort of the essence of his journey within this show is um, why the coast makes us feel good. Um, I think we've all got that idea that going on holiday is good for us and, you know, we just feel so much more relaxed and and, um, enjoy ourselves so much more when we sort of head out of the city and and head for the coast. Mm. And we wanted to see if there was any scientific basis for that. So this starting right in the centre of central London, Oxford Circus, um, making his way to the coast and, and we measure his stress levels throughout that journey. And there is a, you know, a marked difference as he leaves the city and gets out to the coast, um, you know, the stress just melts away. We take that as a starting point and then build upon that that idea with his journey and also with all the other stories in the show. So he um, makes his way to Southend um, to explore the world's longest pier at Southend. When you are looking for stories, do you choose ones based on their location? Do you say, well, we've got two stories in the southeast, so... We'll include that story in Whitley Bay because there isn't anything from the North East in this programme. Or, or yeah. is it simply where the best stories are? It's, it's kind of a mixture of both. I mean, ultimately, we're always going to go for the best stories. Um, yes. But as I mentioned, the beauty of the themes is that you can interpret those very laterally. And we actually didn't have a problem with, with our geographical spread within you know, the themes of the programmes we had allowed us to go the length and breadth of Britain and, and beyond, actually. And, you know, and I, I was very conscious of, uh, you know, so much telly seems to sort of come from the southeast and around London. Um, and, I you know, I, I want to get, get around the country within our budget, and, and that's what we try to do. So it's a definite consideration with each programme, not just having a, a variety of stories, but making sure we are, you know, get, getting around the, the coastline and reflecting, you know, diff- all different bits of the UK different people your different attitudes all of that kind of thing you know they they all play a role but ultimately you know you you're not going to turn down an amazing story because it it happens to be you know 10 miles down the road from the story before it you know that's that's just the nature of the beast so you know in series 10 we do 
Scotland, Ireland, Wales and England, so that's covered. Uh, we get up to the um, Shetlands and we also have a story in Denmark, one in France um, and also managed to get a team out to the Faroes, um, which is absolutely evening and I'm jealous I didn't get to go on that one. <laughs> Which of the many stories throughout the series is the standout one for you? Oh, God. That's a difficult one. I think my favourite is in um, the second programme, which is uh, Bounty from the Sea. And it's um, an amazing story about a plane made from seaweed. Sounds rather bizarre, but um, it's an astonishing story and it's, it's a quintessential coast story. Um, and it basically came from a one line at the bottom of a newspaper article which was talking about the, all the things that um, seaweed goes into, you know, toothpaste and certain types of building materials. Um, and the last line in the article said, oh, there was even a plane made from seaweed in the Second World War. <laughs> I thought, well, what that? No, that can't be right. So um, I, I sort of put our amazing team of researchers onto it, um, and it took, took a very long time to, to research and get to the bottom of it. But essentially, it wasn't quite a whole plane made from seaweed, but there was a, a plane um, known as the Timber Terror. It was a, the Mosquito plane in the Second World War, which was made from balsa wood. Um, and when the um, U-boat attacks on, on the, the British convoys threatened the supply of, of wood, balsa wood, which was coming in from Ecuador, there was a mad panic that, well, we need a replacement for balsa wood. So um, a German scientist who'd, who'd fled the Nazis and happened to be a friend of Einstein um, ended up in the UK and just sort of, you know, was working for a, a company coming up with things they could use seaweed for, basically. And he came up with this uh, amazing process of extracting water from seaweed using electricity to um, create a sort of a, a foamy, hard foamy type substance, which was a perfect replacement for balsa wood. So I have to say, our exec never believed that this story was true, kept demanding more proof, more proof. He, he thought we were making it up. And I was like, no, it's true, it's true. So we, we tracked down the granddaughter of the, the professor, and um, she obviously gave us photographs and some of his notebooks. It's an incredible story, absolutely incredible story, and tests... Um, uh, Tess, who's obviously a well-known face on um, on coast, you know, takes that on with a plum, and it's it's just a brilliant story, um, all about humble seaweed. So uh, yeah, that's my favourite. <laughs> so BBC Two Thursdays at eight pm, and on the BBC iPlayer. Keep an eye on the coast website because there's a lot of um, unseen clips, interviews with presenters, you know, things that didn't quite make the final programme. Um, so there's actually you know, a wealth of other material alongside the, you know, the, the, the six programmes for, for people to enjoy. Sean, thanks for coming on the podcast. Brilliant, thank you. The Pennine Way was the first national trail in the UK, and in 2015 it celebrates its 50th anniversary. It might not be the longest trail in the country, that honour goes to the southwest coast path, but the Pennine Way is probably the most well-known. Well, earlier in the year, BBC One throughout the north of England broadcast a special series of programmes presented by the polar adventurer and ocean diver Paul Rose, discovering this most challenging of routes. Now the series is being broadcast to the whole of the UK on BBC Two, and for us in the north of England, it's the first chance to see the programmes in HD. 
And I'm pleased to say that Paul joins me now from Geneva, of all places. Paul, welcome to the podcast. So we here in the north of England have already seen it, yes. but the rest of the country hasn't yet. What can they expect from this series? Well, I think they're in for some big surprises. I mean, even those of us up in the north, we know what the Pennine Way is all about. And yet, as soon as I got started on it, I was amazed by lots of things. The sense of wildness, the sense of adventure, how difficult it can be, but also... What, how much energy giving this thing can be. So I figure that if it surprised me, and it was a thing that I constantly bumped into uh, while I was on the walk, is that I assume that it will surprise the rest of the nation even more. The Pennine Way has got such a history, hasn't it, as the first national trail, and the fact it starts in Edale in the middle of our first national park, the Peak District. Yes, I think it's absolutely great. I mean, here we've got, it was one man's passion, one man's dream, to make this happen and it took you know 30 years you know tom stevenson he got that letter from these ladies that had walked the appalachian trail basically said you know what have we got in england that, that is similar to that and because we had nothing people the likes of me weren't allowed to go up on the on the high fells it was something that was uh, for the landed gentry and uh, farm owners and so of course you know he took that on as a as a big challenge it took him 30 years to to get this into place and uh, thank heavens he did and at the time when this idea came about, it wasn't too long after the Kinder Mass Trespass. So the yes. movement was growing there for, for more access to wild places, but it did take a long time for the powers at B to change. Yes, exactly. And the Kinder Trespass, and you know, when you're on the uh, Pennine Way on the first day, as you leave Edale, you go up uh, along the side and you can see Kinder Scout right up there with the, the great Mass Trespass and everything. And, and there's a wonderful story that when the Pennine Way was opened, uh, they all went up there for the great opening ceremony. And they were, even then, um, when the Pennine Way had been approved and it was in and it had all been finally agreed, tensions were really red hot because they were having fights up there with some of the rangers and uh, landowners to try and keep them away. So, wow. you know, it was a really tense time. So this is a major trail and it's not to be undertaken lightly, is it? Very true. I mean, it's 268 miles and, and I haven't done the whole thing. I mean, it was just impossible. We did think at some point that the way for me to do it would be to walk the whole thing and see who I bumped into on the way. But in the ways of television, we realised that the only way we could meet the right people at the right time was for me to do it in sections. So I just did it in bursts. I know I've done the very best bits and um, um, I'm, I, I don't wonder if I've... I've actually walked further than the 268 miles because we were doing it in bits and starts and various bits over the whole of the summer. Yes. But, but either way, it is. It's a real challenge. I mean, it's a real full-on challenge. And I use the same skills that I use in Antarctica and Greenland and all these other remote places that I work in doing the Pennine Way. You've still got to be able to be a, a decent navigator. You've got to know your limits. You've got to be fit. You need to know what to do when the weather goes down. And even though you might have uh, a good phone signal for one good section, doesn't mean you'll have a good phone signal five minutes later. Yes. So you've still got to be able to, you know, really use your wits. And it, it's a real, it's a physical and mental challenge, no doubt about it. The enthusiasm that you had for the trail really came through in this series, and it was very contagious. And people are starting out on the Pennine Way every day. Exactly, and I think that's the way to do it, is to approach it with a high degree of enthusiasm and don't let purchasing the right waterproof jacket or the right pair of boots put you off. I think you're better off just to get started and have a good go at it. I mean, you can do it 
in the sort of purist style, which is start at Edel and go all the way to Kurt Yatton, don't stop, carry a tent, be very independent, and you have the freedom to stop and start anywhere you like. But of course, it takes a, a bit longer, you know, between two and three weeks, you're carrying heavy loads, but you do have complete freedom. Yes. And then there's the way most people do it these days, which is stop at bed and breakfasts because you don't have to carry too much gear. You're certainly not carrying a tent. And the bed and breakfasts and hotels and pubs on the way are really set up for uh, drying your boots, drying your socks, and providing you with vast quantities of really great food. And then you can make that even easier by having someone carry your gear. That's like a little porterage service. There's a few of them working the Pennine Way now, and they'll take your overnight bag and plop it up to your next point of stay. So that means that you really are carrying a very, very light pack indeed. And you can leave your dinner jacket if you want in your overnight stuff. So you can <laughs> be living a fairly high life at the bed and breakfast pubs and hotels whilst traveling next to nothing. And then the, the other way of doing it, of course, is do it in little bursts, you know, do it on weekends and, you know, even sort of a, a Friday night, do a, do a few hours and gradually chip away and you'll get hooked. I mean, I guarantee people get hooked and do the whole walk by doing it in um, small sections. So either way, people can get it done. But either way, people do have to remember it's still a good old challenge. Well, people do the Munros in Scotland and the Rainwrights in the lakes in, in just that way, don't they? They, they? The people who plan out to complete the Pennine Way over months or even years. Yes, I love to meet those people because I met people on the walk who had done it in every possible way you can imagine. I think that, but I do remember this one guy who'd walked the whole thing and he'd got to Kurt Yetham, had a beer and was so excited he was going to walk all the way home rather than get on the train. <laughs> <laughs> I met another man who was doing it for his 19th time. He'd done, wow. he'd done it 16 times, and he was on his 19th time. And people get hooked on it, you know, there's no doubt. And other people I met were doing it in little bursts, you know, um, as you say, just like doing the Scottish Munros or the Wainwrights in the Lake District. They were going out and doing a section, and then the following weekend doing another section, and gradually chipping off um, the whole of the Pennine Way in in nice, manageable, um, easy-to-arrange bites. Now, you and I are very used to getting out walking, you obviously much more so in, in, in the wild areas, but television film crews aren't known for getting into the outdoors very often. How did the crew cope with the experience? <laughs> well, we did really well, because we weren't a very big crew. I mean, the, the BBC crew, we were... At any given point, only three of us, and that was um, right. the genius Paul Greenan, who is the director, producer from uh, BBC Leeds, who came up with the idea in the first place. So he was always there. Um, and then there was uh, one of uh, three cameramen there and myself. So we were light, so we could generally put up with anything. It was a bit tricky in some special places. I mean, not everybody on the team was comfortable caving, you know. <laughs> is it going to be all right caving? Are we going to get stuck in? You know, what's it like to go caving? And then things like when it just got cold and windy and miserable, we're all as cold and windy as, and miserable as everybody else. So it wasn't too bad. I mean, we, we're, I think we were a bit tougher than an average BBC film crew might be. We had to be careful with gear. Um, I mean, on the special section, say the, the, the canoeing, uh, we used uh, GoPros, which, are, which, as you know, are completely waterproof and very rugged and all that. But when we were underground or climbing or outside then you know just keeping the gear charged up 
dry and not full of dust, for instance, is, is an important thing. But we did really well because I'm working with a really experienced team, you know, some, some of the world's best. And a, a bit of rain or, or sideways dust blowing isn't going to stop them. My granddad used to call that an idle wind. It's the sort that goes straight through you. <laughs> And there can be a lot of that, because after all, these are wild places. And yes. we tend to think that there can't be extremely wild places left in Britain, because we're always told that it's, it's very small and too crowded. But, but nothing is further from the truth, really. Yes, it's well, well said that. I mean, you know, people do feel that, while well, Britain has turned into quite a crowded and it's still a very small country. Can there be any wild places left? But indeed, there, they are. And in, what's particularly great about the Pennine Way is the valleys and the roads through it and around it can be pretty dense and you can be stuck in traffic and you know almost begin to feel sort of claustrophobic Mm. in those uh, industrial valleys and then a very short time later you're on top of a hill or walking along a farm track with a real great sense of exposure and wildness and and the spirit of adventure and and sheer beauty of nature and it, it it sort of reinforces why we need these places even more and why we should celebrate and indeed protect them uh, because they are so valuable in a busy country like Britain. And it's interesting to think that the people who walked the Pennine Way in those first years wouldn't have thought that they would eventually be walking over one of Britain's busiest <laughs> motorways. Yes, I mean when when the Pennine Way was was put in, they had, had to make arrangements for people to walk over it, or walk over the M62. And in them days, you know, who would have thought it would be quite so busy? I mean, it's a lovely bit out that on the walk, and I've did it. I've done it a number of times now. Um, that part of the walk, and it's really great to come across that lovely open moor and suddenly realise, holy smokes, it's the M62, and here's a here's a bridge specially for us walkers. Those two bridges over the motorway there, the, the, the one for the Pennine Way and the other one carrying the B Road, the, the Scamondon Bridge, which was the longest single-span non-suspension bridge in the world when it was built, I think I think they are, are works of outstanding design and beauty. Yes, I agree with you. I, I, think, I think they're great pieces of work, and there's something quite celebratory about walking across there, thinking, you know what, this, this is a nice piece of work, and it's put across a very busy motorway, and it's put there just so that people can walk. I think that, that's really good. I think that shows we've got the priorities in the right place. What would be your collective memories from the filming of the series? Well, the memories were being surprised. I mean, I've spent, I live in Windermere, Cumbria, um, which is only 30 odd miles from the Pennine Way. And I've spent my whole life working in remote, challenging regions and seeking them out, um, if not for work, then for pleasure. And that's where I go. I love to go to the wild places. And crazily, I'd overlooked a really world-class adventure more or less on my front door. So that was the main thing. It's just how, how close it is and how wonderful it is. And then that's, that was reinforced by me, meeting people on it. I mean, I met people from Canada, from the States, from all over the world who were doing this walk and had heard about it and come. And it, everybody said it was living up to their expectations. Everyone was enjoying it. I really loved meeting the guy who had done the whole thing and then had had a beer at Kurt Yetterman was walking all the way back again. Mm. I think he started somewhere around Leeds. Um, you know, what a great man, you know, and he was camping too, so he was having a pretty good load. And the guy who was on his 19th time, I think I've got the numbers right, I think he completed it 15 times, hadn't made it three times, so that makes 18, and then he was on his sort of 19th. And he was a great man, you know, and, 
the, the great thing with him is that when he wasn't walking the pen on way, his job was a postman, so he walks for a living, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a real postman's holiday. Yes, exactly. Lovely, yes. And he... I asked him what had changed about the walk, and he said, well, he said, it's a, it's a bit easier because it's better signposted. The bogs have got boardwalks on and flagstones, and so the route itself has been improved. And he said the people are friendlier than they ever used to be, and the beer is better. <laughs> Paul, thanks for coming on our podcast. You're very welcome. Take it easy, Andrew. The series starts on Monday, the 27th of July, on BBC Two, and is also available on the BBC iPlayer for another 30 days as well. Well, that's the end of another packed podcast. If you'd like to send us a comment or some suggestions about our podcasts, then please do so on Twitter. We are at Walks Britain, or you can find us on Facebook too. Until next time, thanks for listening and happy walking.